Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Hey everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi everyone, I'm Katie Couric, and this is Next Question. Today, I'm going to tell you a very personal story. The first thing you should know, though, is that I am vigilant, even neurotic, about taking care of my health and encouraging others to do the same. I think it's because I lost my husband, Jay, to metastatic colon cancer back in 1998, when he was just 42 years old. At the time, I was an anchor on the Today Show. Many of you know that I lost my husband, Jay Monahan, my loving and beloved husband, last month after a courageous battle with colon cancer. Words, of course, will never describe how devastating this loss has been for me and my daughters and all of Jay's family as well. But the heartfelt and compassionate letters and cards that so many of you sent to me were enormously comforting, and I'm so grateful. After Jay died, I wanted to share everything I had learned about this terrible disease. I also wanted to help people understand there are ways to prevent it to detect it early, and that's by getting a colonoscopy, which I did on national TV. You didn't put the scope in yet, did you? Yeah, we're doing the examination. Oh, really? Yeah, we're doing it. Okay, good. That's a good sign. A few years later, I even got Jimmy Kimmel to get screened. Katie asked me if she could accompany me for my first colonoscopy. You know, you have to have that when you turn 50. And it seemed to be an unusual request, but I know this is something Katie is passionate about and um, it's an important thing to do. So with that said, we're about to watch a camera go where no camera has ever gone before. All of this is to say that even I, the cancer screening queen, missed a cancer screening appointment because of the pandemic. I was six months overdue for a mammogram. I'm sure I'm not the only one who fell into the COVID time warp. So I decided to turn my own misstep into an up-close and personal opportunity. Okay, here is the machine. As well as a teachable moment. And this is where my breasts will be placed. Since I started getting screened, my annual breast exam has been a two-step process because I, like 45% of women over the age of 40 have dense breasts. So in addition to getting a mammogram, and now a 3D mammogram, which is superior to the standard kind, I also get a breast ultrasound. My longtime breast radiologist, Dr. Susan Drossman, has been the one doing those exams and analyzing the results for years. 
So mammography, while it is the gold standard, does not do the whole job in terms of saying that your breasts are normal. Mammography is excellent at looking at calcifications and what we call architectural distortion. Those are both the ways that certain breast cancers can manifest themselves. But when the breast tissue is dense, mammography does a very poor job of looking at masses. I think the best analogy I can give you is if you're looking for a snowball in a field of snow. The conspicuity of finding a snowball in a background of snow is going to be very difficult. So if you're looking for a mass, which by definition is dense because the cells are rapidly multiplying, and you're looking for that in a background of very dense tissue, it's almost going to be impossible to find on a mammogram. So breast ultrasound uses sound waves. So the way that you look at the tissue is very different. So ultrasound is really an excellent tool for looking at masses and cysts. It was June 20th, the day of my appointment. I handed my phone to a technician and asked her to film me. (laughs) Better than Spanx. Okay. So you had your mammogram. And really all looked pretty stable on the mammogram. There was one area where the tissue looked a little bit more distorted than in the past. Where are we going now? We're going back to ultrasound. And we went into ultrasound, and I, and I had in my head this particular area that I really wanted to look at, and you and I were chit-chatting. Do breasts get bigger after menopause? <laughs> so there's definitely a redistribution of body weight after menopause. And when I got to that area... I knew that there was something here that bothered me because on ultrasound, what I saw was a mass. So we were chit-chatting, and I think I remember saying to you, Katie, there's something here that worries me, you know. And you asked us to turn off the camera because we we were recording this to use to remind women to get screened. That is true. And I looked at you and I looked at the person who was imaging us and I said, Can I stop for a second? I think we really need to turn the camera off. I, I, I want to speak frankly. And you said, No, no, we can keep going. And I said, Nope, turn that camera off. And, you know, I, I've been doing this for a long time, so I do know what my thresholds are. And I was concerned about it. Obviously, until we get tissue from it, you never know for sure. And the only way to get tissue from the breast is with a biopsy, which Dr. Drossman did the very same day. And you said to me, oh, I have a bit, I have this I have to go to, and I have this I have to go to, and, uh, you know, I'm very busy. And of course, I know you're very busy, but I knew what this was going to be. And I said, I want to do this today. Stay till the end of the day, and we'll make it happen. And we did. In order to perform a breast biopsy, a very small incision is made into a numbed breast. Using a tiny instrument, the doctor reaches into the area of concern and pulls out several pieces of breast tissue. Dr. Drossman assured me each one was minuscule. It's probably about 23 millimeters long and about three millimeters wide. So, like, compare that to something, because I'm bad at that. So, so like, a, like a little worm? Like a, like a little a baby worm, a yeah. little baby worm. Um, and I take multiple samples. We usually take about five samples, because when you are doing these biopsies, it's all about sampling. So you want to show the pathologist what's happening here. So I take some tissue from the top, from the middle, from the bottom. And that gets put in a little jar of formalin and gets sent to the pathology lab. 
Just 24 hours later, Dr. Drossman called my cell. The mailbox is full and cannot accept any messages at this time. Goodbye. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My mailbox is always full. So she resorted to text. Please call me in the office to discuss biopsy results. So I called you back. And do you remember what you said? I probably said, do you have a few minutes to talk? I'll share those results right after the break. Hey, everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Claim comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. When you got the pathology report back for me, I'm just curious because we've known each other for a long time. <sighs> yeah. And you know what I've had to deal with. Yes. With yes. my husband and my sister. Yes. Yes. So I have to say, you know, I've been doing this for a long time and I kind of knew what it was going to be. So it didn't surprise me in terms of what the pathology was, but I knew it was going to be hard for me to tell you. And hard for me to tell you because I know what you've gone through in your life. So when I got that pathology, I said to myself, oh my goodness, how am I going to say this? Which is really always what I say to myself when I have to confront somebody with this news. But, you know, we have known each other for a long time. And it's always hard. It's hard for me every single time I do it. So I called you back. And do you remember what you said? I probably said, do you have a few minutes to talk? You know, I try to, when I am worried about something, give people at least a a premonition that I am going to call and it may not be great news. And I try to not spring things on people because I'm the one who calls. You know, and I think probably what I said, it is, it's a small breast cancer. It's totally treatable, but we need to make a plan. And do you remember what I said? You probably said, am I going to be okay or... Or shit. Shit, or I got to go to the Hamptons and I'm going to Aspen tomorrow and I have a lot of things I need to do and can I still do them? And the answer is yes, but we need to address this. I was going to visit John's parents and I was going to a wedding in Aspen and I was both shocked 
and yet not shocked because I've had so much cancer in my life. I think a lot of people think, well, if one out of two men and one out of three women are diagnosed in their lifetimes, you know, there's a good chance that many of us will be in this position. Well, the numbers are high. The numbers for breast cancer are one in eight women will be diagnosed with a breast cancer in their lifetime. Those are significant numbers, and that's why screening is so important. Cancer. It's a pretty scary six-letter word, despite all the strides that have been made. It's a word that's been part of my world for much of my adult life. But breast cancer? Breast cancer was new. No one in my family had even had breast cancer. And I always thought family history was such an important factor. So I will tell you the thing that bothers me the most when patients come in and they say, oh, I have no family history. I don't even know quite why I'm here. Or I think I could come every other year because I have no family history. I think what people need to know is that 85% of breast cancers are sporadic events, things that are unplanned. I don't know, bad luck. I I really can't answer why, but, you know, there is no family history with 85% of breast cancers. So the small percentage, 15%, are the ones with a family history or genetic predisposition. So the majority of things that we find are in patients that, you know, are walk in thinking, you know, their day is going to continue as it always does. And, you know, unfortunately, I think that as we get older, as we talk to more women, we realize how our lives can change in a second. Less than 24 hours later, I was sitting across from a new and critically important member of my medical team. My name is Dr. Lisa Newman. I am a surgical breast oncologist and chief of breast surgery for Wild Cornell Medicine and the New York Presbyterian Hospital Network. And what did you say to me and what do you say to most patients? Do you remember that day? Well, the first thing that I had to do was to um, take a deep breath and bring myself down to earth because to me, you are just a superstar, magnificent individual, all that you've done in your career and all that you've done for cancer research, I was obviously starstruck. But the first thing that I had to do after bringing myself back down to earth was to understand that meeting you as an individual meant that I did have to fulfill my responsibility to you as a physician and make sure that I addressed all of the same concerns that you were going to have as a newly diagnosed woman with breast cancer that every other woman with breast cancer has to deal with, the, the fear, the um, unknown, the uncertainty about the future. A cancer diagnosis of any type is horrific and life-changing. And a breast cancer diagnosis in particular for a woman is a very personal, very difficult diagnosis to hear. I remember telling you, Katie, number one, you were facing an excellent prognosis and excellent outcome. As long as you complied with appropriate treatment, you had every reason to be expecting that this cancer was going to be treated successfully. And this is the case for most women with breast cancer, fortunately. Number two, I wanted to make sure you understood that you were not racing the clock. We know a lot about the biology of breast cancer, and most women should be confident in the fact that the cancer is not spreading through their breast by the day, nor is the cancer spreading through their body by the day. And so it is very important that women take the time to understand their treatment options and their diagnosis 
before they jump into any treatment plan prematurely. Now, this doesn't mean that we want women to delay getting their breast cancer taken care of, but it does mean that they have a few weeks, you know, four weeks, six weeks, to make sure that they understand what their options are. After we discussed those two important messages, it was very important for you to understand that you had treatment options. Because your cancer was detected at an early stage, the first step in your treatment was going to be surgery, and the goals of the surgery were to take care of the disease in your breast, as well as to get more information regarding the stage or the aggressiveness of the cancer. And then those surgical findings would drive the other types of treatments that you were going to require, such as radiation needs, such as possible chemotherapy, taking special cancer-fighting pills. The surgical information would inform all of those decisions. The initial surgical options that you had included having breast-saving surgery, which involves doing a lumpectomy to focus on removing just the cancerous area that led to the biopsy and the diagnosis. And then following a lumpectomy, radiation would be delivered to the breast. And radiation treatments after a lumpectomy are very targeted X-ray beams going right at the breast itself. And these radiation beams are designed to kill the microscopic cancer cells that are hiding in the normal appearing breast tissue. The alternative surgical plan is mastectomy surgery, where we completely remove the breast. And when we completely remove the breast, we're taking care of removing the cancer-identified lump, as well as the microscopic cancer cells hiding in the normal-appearing breast tissue, simply in one fell swoop with that mastectomy surgery. I remember you telling me, Dr. Newman, that the outcomes were the same. Yes. For mastectomy and lumpectomy with radiation and medication. And I thought, well, if that's the case, I would prefer to have a lumpectomy. But I also didn't have some of these other, you know, extenuating circumstances with BRCA or any Mm -hmm. of these things. So I felt very comfortable getting a lumpectomy. Yeah. And a lumpectomy was extremely appropriate for you because you did catch your cancer at an early stage. In fact, it was stage 1A. What does that mean? Yeah. So stage 1A, clinically, based upon what you're seeing on examining the patient and what you're seeing on uh, looking at the mammogram, ultrasound pictures, and based upon those characteristics, those microscopic markers, estrogen receptor, progesterone receptor, HER2 new, and the appearance of the individual cancer cells, the grade, what we call the grade of the cancer, all of those things were favorable in your situation. And that goes along with a stage one breast cancer. Stage 1A is the better category of stage one as compared to stage 1B. And this is another example of where we've made advances in understanding breast cancer and characterizing it much more precisely. In the past, we only characterized breast cancers by their size and by the lymph node status and by whether or not you saw any evidence of cancer hiding in other organs of the body, metastatic disease, for example, in the liver, lungs, bones. Today, we are much more precise about the staging because we understand that these markers that we evaluate are so critically important in understanding the aggressiveness or the likelihood that the cancer will ever be a life-threatening one. And so, in addition to looking at the size and the lymph nodes, we also look at the uh, presence or absence of those different markers, and that will also impact upon the stage of the cancer. All things considered, I was, I am lucky. My cancer is highly treatable. 
And thanks to Dr. Newman, I had a better understanding of my prognosis and a treatment plan in place. Surgery was scheduled for July 14th, a little more than three weeks away. Now, I just had to share the news. Ellie, why don't you say my name is Ellie Monahan and I'm Katie's daughter, and then Carrie, you say it the same. Okay. With two very important people. My name is Ellie Monahan and I'm Katie's daughter. And my name is Carrie Monahan and I'm Katie's other daughter. <laughs> it's not unusual for her to call and text me a lot. Um, I've gotten better, but I used to be really uh, sort of unresponsive (laughs) to her, especially when I was in college. But no, it's not unusual for her to call or FaceTime out of the blue. We talk all the time throughout the day. But I noticed when I woke up in the morning, I had a missed call and that she was saying, please call me. And she does that all the time. (laughs) Um, It could be for something totally random and unimportant, but that she wants to ask me about or something. Um, I remember I had just woken up and we FaceTimed and, you know, she told me, and it it was scary. Um, She told me that everything was going to be fine. I think she prefaced it that way. And I felt worried, but also I think she understood from the get-go that she had access to amazing doctors, that it was super early, and that she, in all likelihood, was going to be okay. Um, She told me we weren't going to be able to go on this trip that um, she and I had planned, um, understandably, because that was going to be when the surgery was. And she said, don't tell Ellie because I'm going to tell her. Um, And then I guess she then told Ellie. Yeah, so I found out, I guess she was diagnosed on June 21st, which it feels like I think was a Tuesday. And I'm I'm sort of different than Carrie. I historically have been very uh, anxious and always in constant communication with my mom. And I've only learned in the past few years to like give it a a rest a little bit. Um, You know, I always had her on speed dial and I still talk to her all the time, but um, it used to be every day. And now it's, you know, a couple times a week. And that's healthy because I'm 31 years old and I'm married. And anyway, so, you know, we hadn't been talking that much, especially because in June I had three weddings and was traveling back and forth from LA where I lived to the East Coast where these weddings were. I did not plan my travel well. And I remember um, I took a red eye to New Jersey to go to my, my husband's cousin's wedding and it was the day Roe v. Wade was overturned. So right. I, that Friday, I think it, the 24th of June, I want to say. So um, already was very emotionally drained. And that was the same day I finally got in touch with mom. And she told me, you know, that she she had been diagnosed with breast cancer, but it was very early stages. And, and she, you know like Carrie, she prefaced it and said, I don't want you to worry. Um, It's very early stages. It's, it's small. So I think I was, I was really drained and almost numb when I heard the news. And 
I obviously was very upset. Um, so I wasn't numb. I just mean, I, I felt not myself already to begin with. Um, so I was really upset. I would say there were certain trigger words used, like obviously cancer um, and radiation was hard to hear. Even the mention of chemotherapy, you know, uh, imagining mom losing her hair or, you know, or going through chemo, which I think can be really harsh on your system. Um, that was really scary to me. Sadly though, because when our father was diagnosed with cancer in 1997, he had stage four, you know, hearing it's, you know, stage 0.5 or one was very reassuring. Um, but I knew we were gonna, you know, get more information as it came and that she has amazing doctors and she was so calm about it. So I was really comforted by that after the initial shock of, you know, hearing the C word. And I think she was, you know, protecting us, which was really nice in her time of need to, you know, that's a real mom move. And I think my brain just could not go to a place where she wasn't going to be okay, having lost our other, our father, another parent. So I just like, couldn't really go there. I, I'm, I'm not really being clear. It, I was going, I was all over the place, <laughs> but um, yeah. I think you called me and I was just like, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Because I really, I don't want to minimize the experience or that it was scary because it was. But I think because of the way our mom set the tone, and she's not somebody who would say it's going to be okay if it's not. So I don't know. I think Ellie was very, very overwhelmed. I think the reason for Ellie and my disparate reactions to the news also has to do with the fact that I was basically an infant and Ellie was six years old at the time our dad was sick. So I have no memory of it. And I think being that close to cancer um, that ultimately resulted in death when she was that young um, made the experience much more visceral for her. Um, I think Ellie, you were recently sharing with me kind of your memory of being very freaked out by a mannequin head that had one of our dad's wigs on it um, and just lots of other memories like that that I don't have. So I think that is part of it for Ellie and why it's different for me. Yeah. You know, I have been learning a lot about myself through therapy over, gosh, the past four years. And um, like you know, 99% of the planet these days, I have anxiety. And I think a lot of it is rooted to the fact that, you know, we were living this wonderful life and everything was great and until it wasn't. And I'm constantly, you know, trying to anticipate or look out for the next, you know, the next- uh, Catastrophe? Yeah, the next catastrophe. Um, and, you know, I think that I've done so much work uh, understanding that, that I wasn't, you know, it, it's like, oh, I was definitely triggered, but I was aware and understood, I was aware of and understood that trigger. So I could kind of deal with it 
more and not let it consume me so much emotionally. Um, it's funny to me that, you know, the old me would say, I can't believe that, you know, that month in June that you weren't calling your mom every day. Look what happened as a result, you know? But I, I think I know now that life is going to throw you obstacles and you just have to do the best you can and you can't anticipate them. And calling your mom every day, moving back to the same city where she lives, you know, that's not going to change anything. <laughs> My doctors assured me that if I followed the appropriate protocol, I had every reason to expect the cancer would be treated successfully. So the first step was surgery. So my job on the morning of your surgery is to make a path. Um, usually I call it a GPS for the surgeons. It was scheduled for July 14th, and I began the day with a stop at Dr. Drossman's office. It's not just taking out the tumor, it's getting a good margin around the tumor and also making it cosmetically pleasing because if you're doing a lumpectomy, uh, the whole purpose is to remove that tumor, preserve the rest of the breast with a good cosmetic appearance. So we did that on the morning of the surgery. You came in early in the morning. Uh, again, I used ultrasound to guide us. I cleaned the skin um, with betadine, same as before, gave you local, and then put a very skinny little wire. Almost like, It's like a little horsetail hair. It's very, very thin and flexible. It goes right into the tumor uh, and marks the site. And then we taped it to your skin and you uh, went to go see Dr. Newman. First, I was prepped for surgery. Hi, everyone. This is Erin. She is helping me. Erin, what is your job here at New York Hospital? I am a nurse practitioner here in the breast surgery service. Here's the sitch. Had a wire put in my boob, which is basically providing guidance for the surgeon because I have a little... Situation. I hope it's and then I was wheeled into the surgical suite where I was given a nice dose of propofol and drifted off. I remember very distinctly you going to sleep and going to sleep in your, with your type of surgery simply meant sedation. You did not need to be under general anesthesia for this type of operation, for this type of surgery. But I'm happy to report I didn't feel anything. Which is the way it's supposed to be. Thank goodness for that. So we can do these operations under local anesthesia and sedation. But as you were falling asleep, I remember just being even more amazed by you and even more starstruck because you were talking about how you wanted to help other women and you went to sleep talking about how you wanted to make sure that other women could take advantage of all the advances that exist out there for breast cancer. And you were talking about how privileged you felt. I just, it's, it was so heartwarming to see somebody as amazing as you, still thinking about others as you were going under anesthesia. We'll make sure this isn't edited out of the podcast. But <laughs> you should not. I, I, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But so but, amazing. But how did you go in and actually, I mean, you cut around. Well, you tell me. Yeah. So it, 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 while we want to prioritize taking care of the cancer, it is also important to make sure that you project into the future and try to keep the patient looking as whole and as herself as possible. So for breast cancer, that's quite important. And it doesn't mean that we need to be respectful and thoughtful about where we plan our incision uh, sites. 
For many women, it can be helpful to bring in um, their favorite brassiere or uh, bathing suit top so that we can make sure that we get an idea of where their tan line is located so that we can keep the incision out of the way if they were wearing a if they were showing off some cleavage or something. <laughs> so in your case, uh, we had the very nice option of making the incision at what we call the periareolar edge so that I made the incision at the site where the skin color changes at the areolar edge so that the incision could be camouflaged by that normal change in skin color. And you made sort of a half moon incision, didn't you? Yeah, around my areola. Yes. We're getting very up close and personal here, people. (laughs) And then, okay, I'm going to use earmuffs, but then what did you do? Because I'm a little squeamish, but go ahead. La, 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 la. So through that half-moon incision at your areolar edge, I was then able to dissect it down following that guide wire to get to the location of the tumor and basically carve out a wedge of breast tissue surrounding that wire. And in the middle of that wedge of breast tissue, your tumor was located. And that's the piece of tissue that gets sent to the pathology laboratory for analysis. So do you send the whole the whole thing, or is somebody there who kind of cuts it, or is that the pathologist who's sort of slicing pieces of my tumor? The pathologist does that actual processing and right. Well, you're, you're pretty busy on the, I on the operating yeah. table. You can't be like, uh, stand by, I'm going to slice her tumor now. Yeah. So you send that off, and then you are able to determine I had clear margins, or you told me something when I when I came to. Yeah. So we can get some preliminary clues regarding the margins from the information that we get in the operating room. We get a mammogram of the piece of tissue that was removed itself so that we can get an assessment of whether or not there appears to be any abnormalities approaching the margins. And we also do something called uh, resection of cavity shave margins, where we basically sample little slivers of breast tissue surrounding the lumpectomy that was removed. And those strategies give us a pretty good chance at getting those negative margins. At the same time that you underwent the lumpectomy surgery, you also needed to undergo the sentinel lymph node biopsy, which is the operation to evaluate the glands in the underarm and give us more information regarding the aggressiveness of your cancer. So you cut under my arm just a sliver? Yes. Yes. Ashley, or how big? Uh, yeah, so we make an incision about that long in the underarm area. That's like, what, an inch? Yeah, probably about an inch. It basically needs to be wide enough so that we can insert a little probe into the underarm area, which is a Geiger counter probe, and the Geiger counter detects the radioactivity that was injected into the breast. From the radioactive isotope, which kind of was like a heat-seeking missile to my lymph nodes. That's a great way of describing it. So you actually pulled out lymph nodes, and they are what is used to determine how, if the cancer is potentially spread, right? It gives us clues about the ability of that cancer to spread. And so a cancer from the breast that's capable of getting into those lymph nodes is a cancer that in general will require more aggressive medical treatments for us to eradicate the microscopic cancer that might be hiding in other organs. So it's, the lymph node information is a very important clue 
enabling us to decide whether or not chemotherapy will be important in managing that patient's cancer. You stitched me up. Actually, you used surgical glue, didn't you? Yes, yes. All of the stitches for the, that, I, that, that I used in your case were buried underneath the skin, and then I sealed the skin up with a special skin adhesive, a sterile adhesive that's designed specifically for uh, bringing the skin edges together so that you didn't need to have any stitches removed afterwards. So it went pretty smoothly, all things considered, right? And it was, I mean, not to make myself feel common, but it was kind of a run-of-the-mill breast cancer situation for this kind of tumor, wasn't it? We do see a lot of that. Fortunately, with uh, the advances of mammography screening, we do identify most breast cancers at an early stage. And so most women can take advantage of breast-saving surgery. And that's a wonderful thing. That certainly wasn't always the case. But happily, this was the situation for you, Katie. It took a few weeks to get my pathology report. And to be honest with you, that was slightly nerve-wracking. I had mixed feelings when the results did come in because while my lymph nodes were clear, the tumor was bigger than expected, 2.5 centimeters, about the size of an olive. But luckily, that didn't change my staging, which was still 1A. But there was still one more piece of information I was waiting for. The oncotype is a gene expression profile that basically lets us do a deeper dive into the genetic machinery. It gives us a snapshot of the genetic machinery of these cancers to figure out whether it's an aggressive one or a less aggressive one. And then that information will determine whether or not chemotherapy should come into the picture in addition to the targeted hormonally active uh, medications that we use for the cancers that are estrogen receptor positive. So there was a chance I would have to do chemotherapy and these aromatase inhibitors. Correct. So you called me or someone called me, I can't remember at this point, and said my score was 19. That was me. Yeah. That was you, <laughs> Dr. Newman. And anything below 27? It's interesting. The ranges are shifting, <laughs> but uh, the let's see, simplify it by saying that some the scores go from zero to one hundred, and some categories of the score are considered low risk. Others are intermediate risk, and a third category is high risk. But as data evolve, the cut points do change over time, and therefore our recommendations will change over time. For you, that uh, score of 19 was low enough that it was clear that chemotherapy would not be necessary. We'll be right back. Hey, everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course, we'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, from actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table, because geek culture is pop culture, and we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's September 7th, and it is my first day of radiation. They'll be radiating my left breast to get rid of any kind of microscopic cancerous tissue. It sounds pretty easy, but um, I'll let you know how it goes. Every morning, I was greeted by this fantastic team from the New York Presbyterian Wild Cornell Radiation Department. So, uh, do you need to go to the bathroom before we start? No, I'm good. But if you ever do, just mention my name and get a good seat, okay? Oh, oh this, this is apparently the Shecky of the radiology department. Okay, here so, we go. This is the treatment room. I love them so much. They actually made radiation weirdly fun. By the way, that's Caesar Carter. Car- Caesar, what do you do? What's your uh, I, job? My, I'm a senior radiation therapist here. Oh, great. And this is Tina, also a therapist. Hi, Hi everyone. Good Hi. morning. And Gabrielle. Hi, nice to see you. This is Dr. Ring. And of course, the grand fromage of the operation. I'll be here to verify the setup and make sure everything is as we expect today. We'll take a that look. voice you're hearing is Dr. John Ng, my radiation oncologist. I'm just curious before I go in, has radiation advanced a lot in recent years? Because I've been amazed by the technology involved in cancer treatment. Have you seen the same amount of progress in this field, Dr. Eng? Oh, dramatic. So, you know, I had a colleague who uh, recently retired, and he tells stories about when he started training, they actually had a parakeet in the room to tell you when there was enough radiation delivered. Really? A yeah, parakeet? Wait. This, is, this sounds crazy, right? But this actually occurred, I think, in the 1970s. Wow. This was how you measured radiation treatment. What did the parakeet then? Keel over? It, yeah, it would make a sound, exactly. Really? It's the, like the canary in the coal mine. It wow. would make a sound when enough radiation had been delivered. I think it was around the 60s and 70s that the doctors would usually prescribe treat until the skin peeled. That was how you prescribe your radiation dose. So we actually still live with that legacy today. I think patients still have that perception. But really, radiation technologies have improved to a point where we can take a CT scan and just delineate the target where we're trying to deliver the radiation treatment for. And so the radiation is much more precisely delivered now. That's exciting. All right, well, let's do this thing, kids. I did this for 15 days. Okay, here it is, day two, and my buddy Caesar is greeting me. And for 15 days, it was always the same setup. Go into the changing rooms. I get a robe out, pick a locker, 
put my things in it, put my robe on, and go to the room. Greet my jovial team. Who's that young lady there? Good morning. Hi, good morning. That would be me, Katie Couric. Excellent. Make sure it's actually me. And can I have your birthday? One seven nineteen. <clears throat> excuse me. 57. Okay. And what part of the body are we treating today? And pick the music I'd listen to while I got radiation. What okay. kind of music would you like? What music? How about Dolly Parton's Greatest Hits? Okay. Got any greatest Hits. Greatest Hits. Sounds good. Any particular one? Let's have Jolene. Jolene? Uh, I, you know, Jolene. I'm not the biggest, sorry, Dolly, Jolene fan. So let's start with like Two Doors Down or something. You got They're it. laughing and singing and having a party. You want a warm blanket? Uh, sure. My radiation team was fantastic. They made the whole process not only as painless as possible, but is it weird to say they actually made it fun? But as I saw other patients in their robes milling around, I wondered, what are they dealing with? And of course, I thought about my own family. You know, I've been thinking a lot about Jay during this whole process, how grueling and terrifying his treatment was, how bad his prognosis was, how you don't get more real than that, facing your mortality. I'm just so lucky, you know? I was warned about the side effects, that I would feel fatigued and my skin might turn pink. But besides my left breast looking like I've been sunbathing topless, at least on that side, I have felt pretty good. Now with radiation done, I'm moving on to the long-term stage of care, which includes a medication, something I discussed with Dr. Drossman. I'm on something called an aromatase inhibitor, which I guess keeps estrogen out. What does that do exactly? So your tumor was what we call estrogen receptor positive. Was it also progesterone? It was progesterone receptor positive and what we call HER2 negative. These are three receptors that we do on all invasive cancers to kind of create a profile because all breast cancers are not created equal. You can have a small tumor that's highly aggressive. You can have a large tumor that's very indolent. So we really, when we're treating patients... Aside from doing lumpectomies, we want to understand the receptors so that after the surgery, we can treat them appropriately. You wouldn't want to treat somebody with an anti-estrogen if their tumor was estrogen receptor negative. It does nothing. So for you, your tumor was estrogen receptor positive, so you can be treated with an oral agent, something called an aromatase inhibitor, which acts to kind of suppress that estrogen. But I like estrogen. I know you do, but we're going to have to do something else for you. Because estrogen, I don't know, it oh, keeps I, you feeling young. It's good for your face. It's we're gonna good get for your you some joints. Good creams. That's yeah, what we're gonna do. I guess so, right? <laughs> but I'm gonna take that every day for five yes, years, and you will tolerate it well. Majority of people really tolerate it very well. The other thing that you're gonna be doing is that for the first two years, we're going to be seeing you every six months for a mammogram on the involved side and a breast ultrasound on the involved side because we want to follow that and make sure that you're healing well and that there's nothing going on at that site. So the involved side 
gets followed every six months for the first two years. The uninvolved side is still on a yearly basis. So we're going to be seeing seeing a lot lot more of of each each other. other. For sure. For sure. What is your message to women? Because this is why I wanted to, quote unquote, go public with this. I really want women to be educated, to obviously get screened. But what would you say to people listening to this conversation? So I think it's really important to be your own advocate, to understand your personal history, your genetic predisposition, the density of your breasts, to understand so that when you walk into a physician's office, you can advocate for yourself if ultrasound is not offered to you and you have dense breasts. You know, I hope that this podcast really allows people to understand the importance of breast ultrasound uh, in terms of evaluating tissue that is dense and uh, understanding what your own risk factors are. Well, hopefully we'll save some lives here. And make a difference. I think that's really important. And I, and I admire you for going public on this, Katie. Well, I mean, I've shown the world my colon. <laughs> Why not my breast? That's for sure. <laughs> One thing I think that's been really valuable is our mom has always taken care of us, um, you know, when we've been sick. Um, For me, the most seriously I've ever been sick was having a kidney infection when I was in high school. That was pretty serious. Or randomly last year I was in the hospital, but it was just strep throat that got really bad. But she's just always there and communicating with the doctors, getting the things we need and just being such a source of comfort and reassurance. Like I would never, I wouldn't want to be sick with anybody else taking care of me but my mom. So to be taking care of her um, in the aftermath of her surgery or, you know, the the lead up to it, I slept over, I went with her to the hospital. During the surgery itself, I took a nap. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then the doctor called me to come downstairs to see her wake up from the, the anesthesia and taking her home. And I, I don't know, it was it was sort of a humbling experience. And um, I don't know, one that was really meaningful to me, but also made me sad and nostalgic in some ways because it made me think of, oh, is this what it's going to be? be like as mom gets older. And, you know, that's part of life, um, that we reverse roles um, in terms of taking care of our parents. But that was mostly what I got out of it, just, I guess, a renewed appreciation for all the time she's taking care of me. I think for me, because I wasn't there for the diagnosis or the surgery um, and connected with her in August when she, you know, had a scar, but um, was healing. Uh, To me, it really just reaffirmed that our mom is like a superhuman and so strong and uh, still has boundless energy and can't sit still. (laughs) Um, I kept being like, why don't you watch Schitt's Creek or just hang out? And You know, I think she was a little bored, but it's all a small price to pay. This whole ordeal, even at my young age, I, you know, I am predisposed to colon cancer. It was a good reminder that I need to get on top of it. 
-hmm. and everyone should, and everyone really should prioritize their health. And it's not always easy because you have work and sometimes it's just hard to navigate with healthcare, I think. Um, But I really think people have to advocate for themselves and you have to look out for yourself and educate yourself as much as possible. I think those are the things that we can do as, as informed patients. When we come back, some critically important takeaways from this experience. And I'll introduce you to a warrior, a breast cancer survivor who's already changing the system. That's right after this. Hey, everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Acclaimed comics writer and notorious Scott Summers hater, Rosie Knight. Well, hello, Emmy-winning podcaster and totally unbiased Targaryen royal supporter, Jason Concepcion. Rosie, somehow the X-Ray Vision podcast has returned. It feels so good. It does. And like always, we'll be here every week covering the wide world of TV, movies, comics, and geek culture. That's right. We'll be talking about Batman, heroes of that stature, and of course... We'll be inviting our friends in the industry to come geek out with us and share stories. We'll hear from TV writers, actors, comics creators, pop culture critics, and more. Nothing is off the table because geek culture is pop culture. And we can't wait to share our love of it all with you every single week. Listen to X-Ray Vision on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm sharing my breast cancer story because I love a good teachable moment. And this, in fact, could be a life-saving one. For the women out there listening and for all of you who love them, please, please go get your annual mammogram. But even more importantly, find out if you need additional screening. Nearly half of all women have dense breasts, which can make it difficult for mammograms alone to detect abnormalities. And only 38 states require doctors to notify their patients if they have dense breasts. And even that mandated information often isn't enough. There's a little verbal, uh, some verbiage in a pamphlet that we hand to patients that says your breast tissue is dense. You may benefit from an ultrasound uh, or another modality other than mammography. But I think in many practices, when patients hear, oh, my mammogram is fine, they assume my breasts are fine and they walk out the door and neither their physician nor themselves think about having anything additional. And, you know, you hear the story all the time. I went for my mammogram. They told me everything was fine. And two weeks later, I felt a lump and I had a breast cancer. How can that be? And the answer is really when you have dense breast, mammography doesn't do the whole job. And if your facility is not offering it and you do have dense breasts, I think you need to advocate for yourself. And here's another thing that really makes me mad. Only 14 states in Washington, D.C. require insurance companies to fully or partially cover secondary screenings like breast ultrasounds. 
I think it's disgraceful, to be honest with you. And I think that it really is a very poor medicine. And it doesn't really make sense because if we have the ability to find more breast cancers with a tool that has absolutely no radiation and is relatively easy to use... I, I don't really understand. Uh, you know, this is really a, has been a discussion round and round and round among breast imagers and state, you know, state legislatures. She said, it's an injustice. I said, well, I said, then we've got to change the law. Michelle Young is intimately familiar with this injustice, that the health care you receive really depends on where you live. Michelle's a lawyer and a mother of five, and she lives in Cincinnati. Ohio was one of the states that didn't require doctors to notify their patients about the risks of having dense breasts. It also didn't mandate any kind of insurance coverage for additional screening. And in 2018, Michelle came face to face with the dire consequences of not having those requirements in place. Dr. Lee Slower calls me, who's the head of Cincinnati Breast Cancer. She said, you're stage four, Michelle. And I said, are we talking palliative? And I said, I'm too young. And she said, well, it can extend your life. My internist, uh, of course, told me to do my bucket list, as did others. And I said, Dr. Lauer, how did this happen to me? And she said, it happens all the time, sometimes every day. You have dense breasts and mammograms don't catch cancer on dense breast. It shouldn't happen to any woman if the technology is there. And it is. It's affordable. We have short MRIs. We have ultrasounds. The question of whether I would live or die was a question of geography, whether I was in the right state where they offer this. So that day, we made two vows. One vow was that we were going to change the law. And the second I asked her was I said, Dr. Lauer, can we go f- for me to live? I really am not that type. I want to try. And while there was a... I was definitely metastatic. I had it in um, over 20 lymph nodes. It had spread to my right hip, my spine, uh, my left arm. And I said, okay... Even if I have a very short lifespan, according to most people, let's go for it. And Dr. Lauer agreed. And that was lucky. While you were being treated, you decided something needed to be done about this. Women like you needed to understand that additional screening is necessary. And not just for extremely dense breasts, for just dense breasts in general. Because they're... Four categories of dense breasts, A, B, C, and D. D is very dense, but C is pretty damn dense. Yes, it is. So what did you do? How did you approach this? And how did you get the law changed in Ohio? I went to Dr. Lee Slower, my doctor, in Ohio, and I said, we gave each other our word. We have to do this. And we don't know what's going to happen because the chances of me being in long-term remission, which to me is three years, really slim. We have to move fast. So she and I gathered together Dr. Mahoney, who's the head of the American Radiology, and we also brought together Dr. Annie Brown, who you would love, who's at UC. They're both at UC. I brought in two legislators. One was Jean Schmidt, who was a congresswoman, who is a conservative Republican, and Cedric Denson, 
was an African-American progressive Democrat, and these two offered to be the authors and to keep it going, even if I was not here. And we met biweekly to put together what we thought was dream legislation. We vetted it with commerce, with conservatives, with just about everybody, all the hospitals before we brought it forth. So we had everything vetted by the Chamber of Commerce, which is really important in advance, and no one testified against it. We passed it in the House with only one vote against it. Then it was sitting there for months and months in the Senate. Ohio is a very divided state, and I saw it wasn't passing yet. It wasn't being put on the schedule, and it has to be put on the agenda and passed. So I went to Columbus, actually wearing this outfit or similar outfits, pink outfits with pink carnations, and knocked on the doors of every senator to talk to them about what we needed. What I found out when I knocked on the doors is every time I knocked on a door, Republican or not, there was someone who had experienced breast cancer. And I knew we were succeeding. I, I, I went to the governor at an event and said, I need to talk to you. You I were kept, relentless. Yes. And, but so was UC, so was my Dr. Annie Brown, so were others. And we had the whole state with us at that point. But the question was, how do we get on the agenda? And I didn't know what was holding us up. So I kept on going with my little carnations. And I knew we were safe when the head of the Senate invited me over. And we were only two weeks before the end, three weeks before the end. And I said... Of the session. Of the session. And I said, well, according to Gene Schmidt, Congress, you know, former congressman, I said, looks like we could get this done in 24 hours <laughs> if we try. Like in a one-day massive session where in the morning we pass the committee, we go to the Senate vote. Then we go back to the committee to reconcile the bills. We go back to the House. We then vote again. And then it'd be passed by the evening. And I said, could we do this? And he said, absolutely. So in one day, between seven o'clock in the morning and seven o'clock in the evening, it was passed. Take me back to the day the legislation passed and it became law. It was a lovely day because in this divided nation, and I was a 2016 candidate, Democratic-endorsed candidate for Congress, I have worked to elect women to office for years. I was heartbroken over all our divisions and the way nothing ever moves forward. And I had never seen or had the opportunity to be there and see a bill passed. And there I was, very far off, in the, I guess they call it the galleys. And each time I was applauded. And I thought, the first bill, the only bill I may ever pass, is actually from the galleys as a stage four survivor, never as a legislator. But th there was this beautiful moment where everything I dreamed of came together, which is that everyone cared only about doing the right thing, that it was, we were no longer Republicans or Democrats or men or women. We just wanted to see that 
we fixed a problem and saved lives. And I was so grateful for that moment uh, to see that and to see my friends. I mean, Jean and Said on opposite sides of the aisle, both of them in this beautiful moment together, feeling they'd done something great for For everyone. For everyone. All I had suffered. I'm just someone who wanted to do something good. And I finally did. So I, I felt it was like a Girl Scout getting her badge. Okay? I did something good. It was the way I wanted to do it, which is... And, and that we all were happy we did it. So I was just pleased that it worked out and that we overcame the odds. So I guess I just felt that day that a chapter was closing. And thank God that I had resolved this in, with decency. And that you're healthy. And for the moment. For the moment, fingers crossed. Yeah. And that you will ensure that hundreds, maybe thousands of women will be healthy. Before we talk about the impact, tell me specifically in kind of simple terms, if you could, Michelle, what does this new law actually say and do? Well, this law, what it says and does, which makes it different, is that women were not allowed before to get mammograms except every two years according to their age. And now it's every year, every age, which means... If you were under 40, you would find it too late. And we have so many deaths for women under 40, but it was considered statistically not as important. So women were allowed to die and not be detected. That won't happen anymore. Why? Because every woman has a right for a mammogram, and every mammogram, if in the judgment of the radiologist, not the insurance company... Not anyone else. If the radiologist can't see clearly... Or says you have dense breasts. She can go, or any other condition, she can get the right screening technology to check on you. And we never had that right before. And that's huge, because it means if we could catch every cancer early, that's 99 out of 100 cancers will likely not come back. Then the third thing we did is we changed the gobbledygook on the language. It is really clear English now. Hey, you've got dense breasts. You've got a problem. And you know what? You better talk to your doctor, and you can ask for additional testing. It is clear as a bell. Not only can you ask for additional testing, your insurance company is obligated to pay for it. Yes. Yes? Yes, and that is the point. Your insurance company is obligated to pay for it. Because for some women, they might even be told that. But an ultrasound, a breast ultrasound is $400, an MRI is $4,000. I mean, a lot of women, A, don't know, and B, even when they find out, Michelle, they can't afford it. No, and, and, and you were right. And that is why this was so important to us. I mean, this was critical because in most states in the nation, they say to you, hey, I think we need an extra test. We couldn't really tell. And then you say, how much is it? And then you don't do it. And... African-American women have such a higher death rate. It's astronomical. It's about income. And access. And access. And what we did now is try to make access as universal as possible for all women. 
That does not mean there's still the issue of the deductible we have to take on next. But yeah, I would say what this did, hopefully, will save thousands of lives within the first year of it being enacted. I'm so impressed by what you've done. And I hope you don't stop. And whatever we can do to inform women and get laws changed everywhere, um, the better. Well, I need your help on this. Every woman should have a right. It, it is a grotesque injustice to all women, and by the way, their husbands and their children and everyone in their life, that they could be gone because we didn't care enough. I saved the colons. Why can't I save the breasts? Wouldn't that be the most wonderful thing on earth to do this October? We could do it. All right, let's do it. The bill that Michelle shepherded through the Ohio State Legislature officially went into effect in September 2022, almost four years from Michelle's cancer diagnosis. Michelle Young is currently in remission. Before we go, I want to give my daughters a special shout out. Thank you, Ellie and Carrie, for being part of this podcast. And of course, to my incredible doctors for taking the time out of their very busy schedules, busy saving lives, to join me for this episode. I'll have much more information, not only about my journey, but really important information about secondary screenings, the risk of dense breasts, and all kinds of information about breast cancer in general for the entire month of October on my website. Just go to katiecurrick.com for more. Next Question with Katie Couric is a production of iHeartMedia and Katie Couric Media. The executive producers are me, Katie Couric, and Courtney Litz. The supervising producer is Lauren Hansen, associate producers Derek Clements and Adriana Fazio. The show is edited and mixed by Derek Clements. For more information about today's episode or to sign up for my morning newsletter, Wake Up Call, go to katiecouric.com. You can also find me at Katie Couric on Instagram and all my social media channels. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Hey everyone, it's Katie Couric, and I want to tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. It's called A Really Good Cry with the amazing Roddy Devlukia, a plant-based chef, entrepreneur, and now a podcast host who will guide you through a journey of self-discovery, one tear at a time. Listen to A Really Good Cry with Roddy Devlukia on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.